have the past, the history. We're also looking ahead to the new earth, the new Jerusalem. That's where we're headed. That's where the Bible points to. So when you look at the Bible, never just say, okay, that's history, that's past. We have to look at the new Jerusalem because that's what keeps us moving forward. If we just look at the Bible as history, we'll go home today and we'll treat it like your third period history class in school. Oh, that's just history. I don't want to read it. But if we look ahead and say, look, there's a history, there's a point about this, and that is it points us to the new covenant. It points us to Jesus, and it points us to beyond the New Testament and the times in which I live in, and which is pointing to the new Jerusalem. That's the goal. That's where we're headed. Now, this is a little timeline that I had here about, uh, an outline, I'm sorry, about Hosea. And it's interesting that Hosea, the first two chapters are fascinating, uh, first three, I should say, because it's all about the relationship of Hosea and Gomer and how it typifies God in Israel. Hosea had an unfaithful wife who left and went after her lovers. God had an unfaithful wife, Israel, who even at his wedding at Mount Sinai, she was already with the golden calf. Um, I, I, it's, it's no joking manner, but it's like a husband who's going to marry his wife and she's already flirting with the with her ex-boyfriend or something like that at the wedding. It, it, you know, how, who would do that? Israel did it. Israel did exactly that. And so from chapter 4 to chapter 10, we have this uh, accusations of Hosea to the northern kingdom of Israel, saying that they had left the covenant, they had left the Lord God of Israel, they had worshipped the golden calves, they had gone after false idols, they have fallen into every kind of immorality and fornication and idolatry you can possibly ever think of. And it takes about ten, uh, six, uh, seven chapters to discuss all of it, because God wants her to repent. God says, enough is enough, you're going to go into captivity, because they wouldn't repent. But the last... Four chapters are future. Future in a sense of God, what's God going to do to Israel? What is God going to do with Israel? And that we're told in the New Testament that God has not done away with his people. Revelation, I mean, um, Romans tells us that God has not put away his people for good. He's not done with them. In a, in, in a state of unbelief that the nation of Israel is today, the Jewish people are today for the most part, God still has a plan in a future to restore them, and that future is intertwined with the future of the church. There are, two, there are two sides of the same coin. So when you look at Israel and God's plan for the restoration, flip the coin over, and that's the church plan and restoration. Why? Because as Paul the Apostle told us, we are grafted in into the people of God. We're grafted into the olive tree. We're the wild olive. And uh, I met some of you guys, and it fits that description. You guys are wild olive, and the restoration of Israel will happen as well as the grafting of the Gentiles into that olive tree. So this is another timeline of where this happened. If you look at chapter 1, verse 1 of Hosea, it tells you that he prophesied during this time, and it was a time of very turbulent times from 750 to so around 720 B.C., um, remember, we count backwards when we go in, in, in the Old Testament, 750 to 720, as we get down to um, AD. Uh, but we also see that Jer um, Hosea uh, saw in his, in his prophecy, but very much could have been alive, when Assyria came and destroyed the northern kingdom. And so these are some of the timelines that we see here. Um, if you want these, just ask me. I'll, I'll give them to you guys. Uh, a couple of things that we have to keep in mind when we're reading it. 
These are little key words in the study or in the, in the book of Hosea. Ephraim, it's always a substitute for Israel, so the northern kingdom. So when God talks about the northern kingdom of Israel, he'll use the word Ephraim, which was the largest tribe of the northern kingdom, and it was the center of political and religious activity. This is where you had places like Bethel. I know it's in Reading, but it's actually, right, it was in, it was in Ephraim, but that, that Bethel's in Ephraim right there. Um, but it was a center of idolatry. It was a center of uh, absolute disgusting things that we're doing there with the golden calf. And then Gilead becomes another picture of uh, a center of idolatry. Gilead was the, a wonderful place in terms of Israel's history, but it became a center of idolatry by the time you get to the prophets. And so today, when we read chapter 11, we're only going to do 11. We're not going to do 12, otherwise we'll be here a long time. Uh, it's very simple. First four verses, God loves Israel. God loves Israel. He still does. Tell that to the replacement theologians. God still loves Israel. Uh, verses 5 through 7, reminder of Israel's problem. Even though he's going to restore them, like a good father, like a good God, he will remind us of what is wrong in order to get the relationship right. You can't get the relationship right unless you correct what is wrong. Otherwise, it's a fake relationship if you never fix what is wrong. Verses 8 to 11, the restoration of Israel in the last days. And this is, goes all the way to the end of chapter 12. Israel's sin and God's calling to repentance. Israel's sin and God's call to repentance. Uh, here's another map that's interesting. Uh, Bethel, there's Bethel right there. And it was called, it's called Beth-Avon, Beth-Avon in Hosea, quite a bit. And then it literally means the house of wickedness. Bethel means the house of God. They were so corrupt that God changed the name, and he called it the house of wickedness. And Gibeah and Gilgal were places where uh, had become so corrupt, even though Gilgal was a very uh, historically a good place for Israel. They had some major victories and good reconciliations with the Lord there. By the time of Hosea, they had gone completely uh, terrible. And Gibeah, of course, if you read the book of Judges, it tells you uh, some of these cities were awful, terrible sin because they didn't follow the Lord their God. Homosexuality, adultery, murder, all happening within the borders of Israel because they had no king, like in the book of Judges, they didn't consider the Lord. So Hosea comes to us, uh, the first of the 12 prophets, the minor prophets on the right, they cover that period of time, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles. But those 12 guys, which we're going to study, cover about 300 years of Israel's history. And the first one is Hosea. And it's no coincidence that he's the first one because he sets the tone for the rest. Now, it's interesting. Amos, historically, is before Hosea. And, and so think of a timeline. It's before, but chronologically in the book, in the, in the Bible, he comes a little bit after, but Amos would have been done preaching by now to the northern kingdom. Hosea is the last prophet to that kingdom. And Hosea's uh, message is very simple. The prophet is preaching, you need to know God. And to know God is to have fellowship with him. And if you have fellowship with him, you have no fellowship with darkness. And you have, if you know God, you love God, you obey his commandments, and you walk in the light as he is in the light. Just like 1 John says, exactly the same. If you know God, you love God. If you love God, you keep his word. If you're walking in the light, you want nothing to do with darkness because God's in the light. And he became the lone voice. The lone voice 
And it's tough to be alone. I know believers today who have to stand alone today because they have no fellowship. They have no, not a lot of believers like you guys. They stand alone tonight, hoping and praying to fellowship like this, but they have to stand alone. And it's very difficult to stand alone. But the Bible says that there were men and women in the Bible that stood alone in a very difficult time. Noah had to stand alone. Um, Deborah had to stand alone. Barak had to stand alone. He stood with uh, Deborah. Jeremiah had to stand alone. Hosea had to stand alone. Two prophets were in the, uh, in the, in the southern kingdom by this point. Uh, the northern kingdom in the southern kingdom. Northern kingdom Israel, southern kingdom Judah. In the south, you had Isaiah and Micah preaching. In the north, you had Hosea. Tough job, isn't it? Be alone. You would think... God, it's such a big place. The northern kingdom had 10 tribes and one guy. The southern kingdom had two tribes and two guys. Uh, then Isaiah went on and then Jeremiah came later. Uh, but they're dealing with the pain of infidelity. And the pain of infidelity, it's quite tragic and quite difficult on, on, a, on a personal level. But God experienced that. And this is the heartbreak of God over his people because they couldn't make up their mind where they were going to go. They were going to go to Egypt or they were going to go to Assyria, and they couldn't figure out that their best place to be was with the Lord. They looked at their circumstances and they said, well, if we just align ourselves with Egypt or align ourselves with Assyria, we'll be safe. They're the two major powers. If we make treaties with them, who's going to invade us? They didn't realize that, but when you play with the world, it's always going to come back and get you always comes back and gets you. There's never a good treaty with the world. You compromise with the world, it'll come back to get you, no matter what it is, no matter what, it, what, what, um, what you make of it, no matter how hope you, hopeful you think it is going to happen, it'll always come back in a negative way. The only safety is in the Lord. The only safety is in the Lord. And of course, Assyria had grown to be this incredible empire who's going to swallow them up, is going to swallow them up eventually. And the, one of the things that God says in his word in Hosea is that they had lost the ability to remember. They had lost the ability to remember, to recollect what the Lord had done for them. And now they had become so satisfied in their status quo. You know, when, you, know you can live a Christian life and you can say, well, this is all there is. And you just get so accustomed to that. And you think that's normal. You think that's, because this is the new normal. And you don't realize that the Lord wants us to live in a greater relationship with them. Uh, not with compromise with sin or the world, but holiness and righteousness. And, and when you live holiness and, and, and holiness and in righteousness, you walk in the Spirit, it's the best life. It's an awesome life. It's the greatest life you'll ever live. However, when we don't and we get accustomed to living with compromise, living with sin, uh, then we think, okay, this is, this is status quo. This is, this is how I'm to do. And that's what Israel came about. They were thinking, well, this is all there is. We just need to worship Baal and God will bless us. And uh, they didn't think about it in those terms like that because they actually call those calves, they call them God. They call them El Al, El Al, uh, the, the highest God, the, the highest of God or the exalted one. And we'll see that in chapter 11. And when we lose the ability to remember it's a bad thing. Now, um, let's get to chapter 11. When Israel was a youth, when Israel was a youth, I loved them. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Out of Egypt, I called my son. And the more they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to Baals and burning incense 
and idols. Now, this is a very interesting thing. Now, here's a picture of a father that's being rejected by his children. And this is a very difficult thing. My kids are little, um, but I could imagine the pain of a father being rejected by his own children. If you felt that pain, God understands you because he's felt that pain. When your son rejects you, when you've done so much for your son and your children, and they become ungrateful, and they become not just ungrateful, but they turn on you and actually become against you. And God called Israel, his love, his love for Israel, he loved them, look what it says, when he was a youth, when Israel was a youth, I loved them. And out of Egypt, I call my son. Now, this is a great connection because there's very few scriptures in the whole Bible that calls, God calls them Israel, his son. Now, there's many scriptures that God calls them his children, many scriptures that God calls Israel his wife, his beloved, etc. But there are very few scriptures that talk about God call him, calling um, Israel his son. And the first one is in Exodus chapter 4. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, we see that Moses goes to Pharaoh, and he tells uh, Moses, God tells Moses, go before Pharaoh. Um, he's not going to listen to you. He's going to harden his heart. But you tell Pharaoh that I want my first son back. I want my son back. They've been in Egypt for 400 years. I want him back. And I love when God talks like that because you know God is serious. And he says, I want him back. And if you're going to get in the way, Pharaoh, uh, my power in my great hand is going to come against you and your land. And uh, Pharaoh didn't listen, of course. You had the plagues, the ten plagues against Israel, against uh, Egypt, where God delivered them and brought them out of Egypt. And this is the, the passage here. Out of Egypt I called my son. Out of Egypt I called my son. It's interesting. We'll go to this passage right here. Um, Matthew chapter 2. Let's turn there very quickly because it's important to see it. Because how does the New Testament handle this verse? Remember, there's passages in um, the New Testament that quote from Hosea. Not many, but here's one of them. And it's a very important one. Because in Hosea, it's talking about when God led Israel out of Egypt. But in chapter 2, verse 13 of Matthew, it's not Israel, but it's someone else who goes to Egypt. And it says, when they had departed, that's the, the, the Magi, when they had departed... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is coming, is going to search for the child to destroy him. And he arose, that's Joseph, took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt. And it was there until the death of Herod. They were there. And that was, and that was spoken, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. This prophet, Hosea. Out of Egypt, I call my son. Jesus goes to Egypt. He comes out of Egypt after Herod dies. He goes back to, uh, from Egypt, goes back to Nazareth. And Matthew says, this is the prophecy of Hosea. Out of Egypt, I call my son. Israel comes, uh, Jesus comes out of Egypt, and he goes back to Israel. And it says, okay, that's the prophecy. That's the fulfillment. And it's interesting, not quite. Because remember... Prophecy is not prediction fulfillment. That's not biblical prophecy. It's part of it, but not the whole thing. It's never just how many predictions can you get right and how many fulfillments are you going to get right. Uh, you know, for every prediction, there's a fulfillment. Yes, but it's more than that. And what I mean by that is 
if you go back to Hosea, that first verse is about Israel coming out of Egypt. Matthew says it's about Jesus coming out of Egypt. Which one is it? That's right. Because it's not just prediction and fulfillment. It's a cycle. It's a pattern. I'll give you one more, one more example, or a couple of other examples. There was the father of Israel, the father of the nation of Israel, Abraham. He goes to Egypt. Remember that? He goes to Egypt. There's a famine. He goes to Egypt. He comes out of Egypt. Israel goes to Egypt. They come out of Egypt. Jesus goes to Egypt. He comes out of Egypt. You see the pattern is cyclical. It's not prophecy. It's not prediction fulfillment. It's historical evidence that God's application of his word needs to be done at that moment in time. That historical event needs to be applied through God's word. But in the New Testament, Paul tells us that those examples of Egypt, those examples of Israel coming out of Egypt, are examples of our salvation. We have come out of Egypt, spiritual Egypt, the world. Egypt is everything that the world um, um, represents today. And we come out of Egypt, Paul says, and we're not to repeat the same sins that Israel committed as they came out of Egypt. And we have a newness of life. We have a an exodus. We have a exodus. Israel goes to Egypt, comes out, uh, the nation, but the son, Jesus the son comes out of Egypt too, and we will too. Not literal Egypt, but this world. We're going to have an exodus, and that's the word for the way, by the way. The way is ek ho dos. Ek ho dos. What does that sound like? Ek ho dos. Exodus, you got it. We have an exodus. That exodus is the coming resurrection out of this world unto eternal life. So it's a pattern of cyclical um, proportions. It's never prediction and a prophecy. It's like, can you see that pattern happen in, history, in, in the biblical history? Yes, Abraham, Israel, Jesus, and us. We all had that same pattern, and we're all going to go through the same thing. But in Egypt, it's where we suffered. Egypt, when we were slaves to sin in the world and have been freed by the Lord. But it says that, um, verse 2, the more they called them, the more they went from them, and they kept sacrificing to Baals and burning incense to idols. And it's a very strange verse because most scholars don't even know how to deal with this verse. Who's the they and who's the them? That's the question. Who's the they and who's the them? Um, the more they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to Baals and burning incense to idols. I'm going to go to this little picture here, because this is what's, what's being done here. It's, it's two, the, you have to look at it in two ways. One, they, um, Israel comes out of Egypt, and they kept wanting to go back to Egypt. Remember the story in the book of Numbers? They wanted to have the leeks, the onions. They thought it was the greatest life. Making bricks for Pharaoh was a good life. And you say, how in the world would they ever think that being a slave is a good thing? Why would they want to go back? But they literally did. They literally wept in the wilderness that God brought them out here to die, and they had it better in, the, in, the, in Egypt, even though they were slaves, making bricks for Pharaoh. As silly as that sound. We've done the same. We've done the same when we long, we long for the world and we long for the things of the world 
and all that it ever offered us. And sometimes I've heard Christians talk like that, like if they miss something. Like once they got saved, they're missing out on something. Man, this is so much fun. I'll just read my Bible and, you know, pray and, you know, don't do nothing and, you know. Like if it's bad. Now, they really are not, if they look at it that way, they're just not walking in the Spirit. They're just not really fully walking with the Lord. There's never a boring moment in Jesus. There are times of peace, and I welcome those, but there's never boring. It's never boring to, you know, sometimes I'm like, Lord, this is too much. Like, spiritual battles, I could deal without today. Like, don't put me in one. And, of course, you pray that, and you get into ten of them. And, ah, it's, what's that? I know. I'm just tired. You know, he's just so tired. He's like, not again. You know, and, and it's not just you, right? It's not just you. It's brothers. It's sisters. You get a call. Anthony was telling me, he's like, I get so many calls now about things, people, believers who fall into various things, and, and you fight with them, right? It's a battle. You fight with them. You get on your knees. You start praying. It's ne- I mean, if you're, bo- if you're bored as a Christian, call me. I have, like, tons of emails and calls that people that need prayer, need encouragement, just need somebody to talk to them, you know, missionaries that need someone to say, hey, have they forgotten me? They remember me? And, and you know, if you're, if you're playing video games or something, you know, and you're like, man, this is all I'm doing, call me. Call somebody here. They'll give you something to do because it's, it's just we can't handle it. It's just so much that the Lord gives us. And, and it's not because we're great or anything like that. It, that's the last thing. It's, it's simply because we want to be available. We want to be available for God's people. But it's never, it's never quite boring like that. But it's a very difficult verse to translate because that's one way of looking at it. They long for Israel. I mean, they long for Egypt. And the more they went from them, the more they kept sacrificing. Now, this is the, the crazy part. It wasn't enough that they were in Egypt, in that pagan land. What do they do right after they get out? The Bible tells us very clear, Exodus 32, Moses goes up to the mountain, gets the tablets. By the way, I'll show you a picture of the tablets maybe on Sunday. Um, you know, we see Charlton Heston with this big, you know. They were probably about this big, maybe a little bit smaller. Fits in the palm of your hands. I know, I destroyed the movie. So, sorry. Uh, but they were very small. And, and so he breaks them. Why? Because Aaron and the people were literally, I'll give you the word, whoring around that's literally the word, whoring around this golden calf, doing all kinds of sexual orgy stuff around this golden calf, and they were saying, this is God, this is God, this is God, and Moses had it. They said, that's it, you know, they barely got new God, and they're already whoring around with Baal. The Bible tells us when they get into the land, I'm sorry, when they're in the wilderness, they do it. Number, numbers uh, 24, at Bel Peor, Balaam entices them, and they go right into sexual immorality, worshiping Baal. They get into the land, Judges tells us, Judges chapter 2, they kept whoring around, doing the same thing with the golden calf. Second Kings tells us exactly the same thing. Jeroboam makes two of them, and they're whoring around with the golden calf. It is as if to say, the more they got away from Egypt, the more they sacrifice. And here's the other way of looking at it. The they and the them, the more they told them, the more they did it. Meaning this, the more God sent prophets, the more Israel kept going further and further away. They didn't listen to them. And you can see the history of Israel. The more the prophets came, they didn't care for them. 
They longed for, Israel, they longed for Egypt. They kept longing for Egypt. Hosea came. Jeremiah came. Ezekiel came. Isaiah, well, Ezekiel was in, the, in, the, um, um, in Babylon. But the more the prophets came, they didn't listen to them. And the more they fell into grievous sins. And God laments over that. Look what it says in, in verse 3. It is I who taught Ephraim how to walk. I took him in my arms, and but they didn't know that I healed them. I led them with cords of a man and bonds of love, and I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaw. I got to hurry, because we're running out of time already. I know. Um, if you ever teach a Bible study, you realize time is fast. It doesn't, you know, I always think like it's only 30 seconds long. A father and the son. God laments, and he says, I taught them how to walk. I carried Israel. Another prophet said, I carried Israel. Now, here's a beautiful picture. How does a father carry his son? Like that. How does a mother carry her son? Like this, right? It's a perfect picture. God put Israel on his shoulders and said, let's go. We're the giants. We can conquer the land. You're taller than all of them. And Numbers, it tells us, they shrieked in fear at the fact that they were giants in the land. If they only would have trusted that God wanted them to put, put them like that. They were the giants. They would have conquered the land. They would have had all the promises of God. And it's still to this day, God wants to tell us, he wants us to put us like that. We're the giants on God's shoulders. When we're on God's shoulders, we can overcome everything. We can overcome sin, issues of life, difficulties, trials. But would you let him carry you like that? That's, the, that's where Christians say, no, 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 no. I can walk on my own. Thank you. And they don't. This is a picture of walking in the Spirit. It's a picture of trusting Jesus and walking by faith and letting God put you on his shoulders and carry you. But they wouldn't let him. They didn't know that I healed them. This is a fascinating scripture because time after time, God did something for Israel. Remember, this is a good Bible study to go back when you do your homework, go back to Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and read all the things that God did for Israel. Uh, Exodus 15, uh, no, sorry, Numbers 15. God heals the waters of bitterness. Remember the waters of Marah? God supernaturally through Moses, they throw, what do they throw in the water? Anybody remember? A stick, that's right, that's right. Literally, wood. Throw a piece of wood in there and the bitterness will be gone. What is that a picture of? <laughs> the cross, right? By the way, the word cross, the idea of the cross in, in the New Testament understanding, it's wood. It's the piece of wood. What's the piece of wood that takes all the bitterness away? <laughs> it's Jesus, right? He takes it all away. And it says when they couldn't have water and they had these bitter water, just throw the stick in there, Moses. It'll make it sweet. It'll make it good. And they did. And they had a wonderful water source, water supply at that point. But it was God who did it. Now, in Exodus 15, uh, I'm sorry, in Numbers 21, we see the story of the snake, uh, the bronze serpent on a pole, right? Remember, they were bitten by the snake, and they were all going to die. And it says, Moses, go fashion yourself a serpent. Put a serpent, put a bronze serpent, and put it on a pole. And if you lift it up, anybody who looks at it will be healed. It's a one of the most strange Honestly, when I first read the Bible, I was like, those are strange verses. How does that work? But I kept reading. And our Lord says, that's me. You ever seen that? 
Jesus said, that's him. Well, how do you get a serpent to become like Jesus? Well, there's a lot to it than that. This bronze serpent's talking about the judgment. Um, sin and Satan is being judged on a pole. Jesus says, just like Moses lifted up the serpent and everyone who was healed, so the Son of Man will be lifted up on a cross, will be lifted up just the same way. And that, my friend, is the answer to John 3.16. Because everybody knows John 3.16. But do you know what comes before John 3.16? That story. Has anyone read it? Okay. Homework today, right? Read John chapter 3. Every Christian should know John 3.16. No problem there. But he shouldn't just know John 3.16. He should know what goes into that. So the story goes, or the gospel says, thus God so loved the world. What does the word thus mean? English majors? That's right. In the same way. In the same way God loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would never perish, but have everlasting life. Now the question for you is, in what way did God love the world? What was the story before that verse? The snake on the pole. In the same way that God did something for Israel with the snakes biting them, and if anybody looked at that pole, they would be instantly healed, in the same way, God did something for us by putting Jesus on a pole, on a cross, that whoever believes, see, it's not believe anymore, like, okay, I agree. Based on that story, they had to turn away from their wickedness that they were doing. That's what caused the wickedness, was what caused the snakes. Turn away from wickedness and look unto God's solution for salvation. That's John 3.16. See, totally changes it, right? When you know the, the, the background. It's not just, okay, I agree, pastor, thank you, I agree. I raise my hand, I agree. No, it's what do you agree about Jesus? What did he actually do? Well, there was a terrible, terrible bite on your life. It's poisonous and there's no cure. It's called sin. It'll destroy you, it'll destroy your life, it'll destroy your family, it'll destroy everything you touch. But if you turn away from that wickedness, which caused it in the beginning, and put your eyes on God's solution, he will cure you, he will heal you, he will get things right. That's the gospel. But you have to turn away and look upon him who was pierced. That's what the Bible says. John, that's John 3.16, by the way. So, sorry to burst your bubble on John 3.16, and, and that's all it was. It was, for God so loved the world. In the same way God loved the world. That's what he's saying. In the same way that God did this for Israel, in the same way he did it. And so this is back to Hosea. They had all the healings. In fact, in Exodus it says, this is the Lord your God, Exodus 15, who take away all of your diseases. He did things for Israel that were amazing. And what did they do? Eh, who cares? Who cares what God did? Verse 4, I led them with cords of a man. This is a beautiful verse. Because now we're going to switch, we're going to switch uh, um, illustrations. Israel is no longer a child on the father's shoulder. Israel is now a cow, a heifer. And you're like, what is that? Okay, very simple. 
and, and if you got to think of it, you know, we're so removed from agricultural life. You know, when was the last time you saw a cow? As God. He's holy and pure and righteous, and he is. But he says, I didn't treat you. I didn't drew you with cords of love as God. He says, I drew you with cords of love as uh, of a man. What is he saying here? In order to understand the gentleness of God, God has to be at our level. We wouldn't understand God at his level. He has to come to our level to even get it. And he says, I came to you with bonds of love as a man. And this speaks, of course, of Jesus. God becomes a man in the person of Jesus. And now we have a mediator between God and man who is a man, a real man. Jesus is a real man. Um, I have almost no trouble convincing Christians that he's God. I have trouble convincing Christians that he's a man. Because most of the time we think of Jesus as God. We're so willing to fight for his divinity and deity, which we should. But don't forget the side that he is truly 100% man. Just like you, just like me. And he comes to us. He is the face of God to us. We see the face of God in Jesus Christ. You want to know who God is? Just look at the man Christ Jesus. He comes to us. Did Jesus come to us beating us and flogging us and say, you need to be holy. You need to be righteous because I'm God. You need to. And some people think of God that way. Some people think of God like a taskmaster says, you better be holy, man. And you better be right because I'm God and you're not. And I'm going to come and get you. And people freak out. Oh, God. And he says, I come to you as a man with bonds of love to draw you near. And you see that glory in the face of Jesus Christ, Paul says. You see that God is quite like a man, but also God. And he draws us near, and he becomes one of us, and he identifies with us as our high priest, and he can relate to our pain and suffering and dealings and struggles, never without sin, though. He never sinned, so he can intercede for us and intervene for us as God but as man, understanding both sides. So God can, Jesus can have his hand on God because he's fully divine and could have his hand on us because he's fully human. He could understand both of us. And if you ever felt far from God, it's because we're not drawing near to Jesus because he is the perfect mediator. He is the perfect mediator. He's God and man. Now, verse 5. They will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria, he will be their king because they refuse to return to me and the sword will whirl against their cities and demolish their gate and bars and consume them because of their counsel. Now, this is what Israel was doing. Remember, Paul had this incredible verse in Romans. Behold, the goodness and the severity of God. There's the goodness of God, and then there's the severity of God. Okay? And we have to maintain them like a battery and a polar polarity. You have to maintain them in a balance. You have to know the goodness of God, but you also have to know the severity of God. You have to know that God is good and kind, but God is holy and righteous and a God of judgment, yet a God of love and peace. And you have to hold those two together in tension and say, okay, I, I, I got it. I believe in both. I believe God is so kind and so good, yet I dare not cross into sin because I know a God who is vehemently against sin, but totally for me and totally good toward me. And you have to hold them in tension. So this is the severity of God. Hosea says, they will return to the land of Egypt, 
They will not return to the land of Egypt. Assyria will be their king. Why? Because they refuse to return to me. They won't turn to me. That's the problem. They will not turn to me. And they'll be, they'll, they refuse. And verse 6 says, this is what's going to happen. Assyria is going to come and whirl their sword around against the cities, demolish their gate, consume them because of their counsel. They thought they knew better than God. They thought they knew better than God. They thought that they, if he could just make the deal, just make the right deal, we don't have to turn to God. We just keep living the way we're living. And it's never that way. And it says in verse 7, my people are bent on turning from me. Uh, literally, they are bent on falling away from me. They keep going and going away from me. Though they call them, though they call them to the one on high, to the one on high. And that's literally the word El Al, El Al, uh, meaning the highest one. So what they were doing is this: they were turning away from God, apostatizing away from God. But what they were doing is that they kept going back to these, these kingdoms, Assyria and Egypt. And the more they turned to them, the more they forgot the Lord, and the more they had these bowels, these calves, and literally they were, called them, they were calling those, those calves El Al. They were calling them the highest Lord. And God says, I don't want you to call them that. Even though you call them that, it doesn't mean you're calling on me. See, that's the problem with idolatry is that you can fashion God to your own image. You can make God to be whoever you want. You call him God. There's people today, even in churches, that would believe that God is okay with lots of sins. Lots of sins. And, and, and it's never the case, but they call them God. They call them, well, you know, God is okay with me doing this. God is okay with me living with my girlfriend or living with my boyfriend. Or God's okay with that. You know, me and Jesus, we have an agreement. You know, you call him Jesus, but I don't think the real Jesus would be honoring you with that. I don't think that guy or that girl is God's blessing on you. You call him Jesus. You say God's okay with it, but I want to know, who is that God that's okay with it? Because the God of the scripture is vehemently against it. Man, he loves you, but boy, he is not going to tolerate sin. And that's the goodness and the severity of God in a balanced way. And so you may call, so Israel was saying, God, El Al, the highest God, while they were calling on Baal. <laughs> and God says, I don't want you to call that. I don't want you to get confused anymore. I'm God. I'm the Holy One. And if you keep calling them that, you're deceiving yourself. Now, uh, verse 8, and here's, again, God's tenderness. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I surrender you, Israel? How can I make you like Abner and treat you like Zebulim? My heart is turned over with me. All my compassions are kindled. Now, this is an interesting verse here because a lot of people get these. Who are these? What are these cities about? Where in the Bible are these? Uh, Abna and Zebulim. What is God saying? First of all, the compassion of God. How can I give you up? God never wants to judge. Put that on record. God never wants to judge. He relents. He wants to relent judgment. He would rather forgive. He would rather forgive than judge. That's our God. That's how good God is. He never delights in judging even the wicked. The Bible says he weeps at the death of the wicked. He doesn't want them to die. He doesn't want them to perish. They do it out of their own will and cognition and rebellion. That's what the wicked do. That's what sinful men do. They 
they turn against God. But God doesn't want them to, ju to be judged. He'd rather forgive them. You know, tonight he'd rather forgive you. He'd rather forgive me. But, yeah, praise the Lord for that. He'd, he'd rather do that. He wants to relent like in Nineveh. And so here you see God say, but how can I judge you, Ephraim? How can I do this to you? You're so wicked, but I love you so much. You see, it, it's not that God, okay, God is, is showing us an internal discussion that he has in his own heart. It's not that God is troubled by this. We're seeing the passion of God. It's, it's almost like a father who says, I love my son, but he's such a screw-up. He is such a screw-up. He deserves all that and more. But how can I do that to him? He's my son. I love him. I'm going to be there for him. But man, he deserves all that and more. And it's this internal, how can I give you up? And he give, mentions two cities, Adna and Zebuim. Who is Abna and Zebuim? Well, if you read your Old Testament, Deuteronomy 24, it tells us there were a total of five cities surrounding the plains. That's right, in the plains of Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 19 tells us God went down there to see the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah and all those cities in the area, and they were wicked. Violent homosexuality, rampant immorality, and their sins had gone up to God. And literally, God's, God goes to see the sin, not that he didn't know, but literally the word in Hebrews means that God needed to be acquainted face-to-face -face with that sin in order to judge. Like God waited so long until he had enough. And this is the picture of sin. You know, when we sin so much, but God is so patient. He deals with us in patience and love, but there comes a point where that sin is face-to-face -face with God, and God says, that's enough. When God says, that's enough, it's enough. And Sodom and Gomorrah receive the judgment of God that is a picture of the, the wrath of God. It's a picture of the wrath of God in the book of Revelation. Fire and brimstone completely destroyed. But there were two other cities where they were destroyed with it. It's in Deuteronomy 24, Abna and Zebuim. The only city that was spared was the city that Lot ran to. Remember? Uh, with the angel, Zoar, yeah. Remember the angel? He says, oh, this is the end of the world, Lot says. This is the end, this is it. Let us run into the mountain. Let us run into the city. And they said, go to that city. Go to the mountains, just like Jesus, right? Go to the mountains. Whoever sees this abomination, desolation, don't. Just run to the mountains. Same thing with Lot. Go to the mountains, and they spare that city. Still to this day, by the way, the other four cities, gone. No one's ever seen them. They're probably underneath the uh, Dead Sea today, but no one's ever seen them. Zabuim, Zebuim and uh, Adma. And God says, I don't want to treat you like that. I'm not going to treat you like that. I'm not going to treat you like those cities. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst. I will not come in wrath. Now, it's interesting. Did God judge Israel, the northern kingdom? Yes. That generation that didn't repent went into Assyrian captivity. No doubt, they'd never repented. They fell into sin. God sent Assyria, and they destroyed the northern kingdom. So what is God, why is God saying that he will not judge them? The answer is, did God destroy Israel like he did Abna, Zebuim, Sodom, and Gomorrah? No. Those cities are never going to be seen again. They're destroyed completely, eternally gone. Is Israel here today? Yes. You can get a flight, you can go to Tel Aviv, land there, travel to Israel, 
And you can go to that verse and say, God, you're so faithful, you said you weren't going to do it. He didn't do it. He judged him, all right. But he didn't do it to the extent of Sodom and Gomorrah. They didn't, or Abna and Zebuim. They weren't destroyed completely. God kept his word that even though he judged them, not to the extent of those four cities. There was a judgment, but he relented the full extent of his wrath. That's what he says. I'm not going to come in wrath. I will judge you because you deserve judgment for that sin. Remember, they didn't repent. After Hosea preached, after Amos preached, they didn't repent. So judgment came. But God, even in that judgment, relented full wrath. Verse 10, they will walk after the Lord. And this is another beautiful picture here. They will walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. Indeed, he will roar, and his sons will come trembling from the west. They will come trembling like the birds from Egypt, like the doves from the land of Assyria. And I will settle them in, the house, in their houses, declares the Lord. Now, this is, a, this is the restoration of Israel. Now, we're going into the future now. Someday, God says, my people are going to follow me, and they're going to come. They're going to hear me roar, and they're going to come from the east, I'm sorry, from the west, from Egypt, from Assyria, and I'm going to settle them in their homes. And this is a fascinating scripture here because it literally says they'll come from the west. And you wonder, how in the world, when did they come from the west? It wasn't, in, it wasn't after they came from Babylon. It wasn't after they came from Assyria. It can only mean that it happens when they are fully restored in the land in our lifetime. 1948, and even to this day, Jews are coming from everywhere, mainly Europe today because it's so bad in the European Union, uh, the anti-Semitism. They're coming into Israel, and God says, I will bring them back. They will hear me like a roaring lion, and my sons are going to come trembling. They're not going to be proud anymore. They're not going to be this, this haughty nation. They're going to come humiliated after being in the nations, being uh, in the nations for so long. And that's what's happened. In fact, in the Isaiah chapter, Hosea chapter 3, verse 5, the restoration of Israel, they said, they will return and seek the Lord and have their king like David, and they will come trembling to the Lord into his goodness. In the last days, in the last days. This takes us into the future, and they will come trembling before the Lord. It says in verse 11, they will be restored to their own houses. We're going to pick up chapter 12 next week. In fact, verse 12, it's actually chapter 12. So there's no, there's no break in scripture. I mean, there's no chapter division in the original. Verse 12 that you see here, it actually belongs to the next set of thoughts that Hosea is going to have. So we're going to stop at verse 11. Um, but just to understand that, that that's the call to repentance. It comes in chapter 12 where Israel is reminded where they could have been. And I titled this message, or subtitled this message, Hope for the Backslider. Israel went into deep sin and immorality. God still had promises to restore them. In fact, it's interesting that that verse that talks about the restoration of Israel, uh, it's often used for the restoration of Gentiles into the body of Christ. The idea being, just like Israel came back, to be that olive tree. God is going to bring Gentiles like you and like me and graft them into the people of God to be part of that olive tree, to be part of his people, 
the wild olive, the wild branches, he called them. And we will together be God's people. Now, Gentiles have been coming in for a while. Jews are coming in a little bit later. But that's exactly what Paul the Apostle said. The last believers into the body of Christ are going to be Jews. As the gospel has gone to the whole world, Gentiles have gotten saved. The last comings are going to be like the first comings. Who were the first people to get saved in the book of Acts? Who are going to be the last people getting saved before the church is cut up are going to be mainly Jews. They're going to be a trickle of Gentiles because the hardness of the world is getting to the Gentile world. The hardness of the world is getting into the church and people that are going to hear the gospel are going to be Jews in Israel, Jews in the world who are going to say, this is the Messiah. This is our Messiah. This is our book. This is what we've been waiting for. Now, we've had it for 2,000 years, and we don't really care for it anymore. Uh, we've had it, and we're like, ah, I don't even read it. What's the point, right? Jews are searching the Scriptures, trying to find Jesus in the very Bible that you have, and we take it so for granted. We take it as, well, you know, a duty, a chore, but in reality, it's life. I'll give you this, uh, this um, Hudson Taylor. I love this. Hudson Taylor, missionary, first missionary to China. Wonderful, wonderful. I recommend his stuff to read. Incredible. He said he lived by three principles in his life, and it reminded me of Hosea. Three principles. Number one, there is a living God. Number two, he speaks in the Bible. And number three, he means what he says. And Hudson Taylor says he lived like that all his life. He applied those three things every day of his life. There's a living God. He speaks in the Bible, and he means what he says. And he says that he lived like that all his life, and he applied everything he knew, everything he accomplished, because he applied those very simple principles in his life every day to live like that and to know that what God wants is intimacy with him, fellowship with him. And that's the hope for the backsliders. And that is the hope that God has for us today, is that God's love can't let you off. God loves you so much, he has, to, he has to deal with your sins. But God's love is so good that, you know, he won't let you down either. He won't let you down. If you trust God, his love won't let you down. And that's what he wants to communicate to us, believers, especially those who've fallen away or, or, or backslidden. God wants you back. He welcomes you back. But he welcomes you back as you turn your back on the bales of your life, on the idols of your life. In order to come back, you have to turn your back on that which caused you to draw away from Christ in the beginning. And so that's where the Lord says, look, look at my people Israel. They're so far gone, and yet I'm going to restore them. So there's hope for us. There's hope for you. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Actually, open your heart to him. Welcome his word, and it will be, like the Lord says, it will be like a rain that comes down on a dry land. And that land is going to turn fertile, and fruit's going to grow if you sow righteousness and pursue peace. That's what God's going to do. There's hope for the backslider. But I'm so excited that Hosea chapter 11 tells us that God's like a lion. He roars. 
And when he roars, his enemies tremble. And we're told that in the book of Revelation that Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he's coming to protect his people. He's coming to restore the nation of Israel. He's coming to bring about the kingdom of God. And he comes, this time not like a lamb, not like a lamb led to the slaughter, as the uh, Old Testament says, but like a lion who roars victory and claims the victory for the kingdom of God. And that's what he's coming to do. And Israel's going to be the recipient of it, and the body of Christ will be right there with them. What God wants is individuals who will follow him and turn their back on the bales and turn their eyes on the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for tonight. May our hearts, Lord, burn within us, as the apostle said, as the disciples said, that when you open the scriptures to them, their hearts burn within them, that they knew this was true. Lord, I pray for anyone listening and people that would hear later, that if they have felt further from God, that God wants them back, that God wants them to be restored. He is so tender. He's so tender and so merciful. He relents judgment. He would rather forgive. And he won't allow temptation to be, for you to be tempted beyond what you're capable of handling because he's so faithful. So Lord, thank you for that encouragement for me, for those who listen, for especially those who have backslidden, Lord. I pray that they would return to me, says the Lord, and I will give you rest. Learn from me, for I'm meek and I'm humble. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Feed on me. I will take you to the rivers of living water to restore your soul. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy. And I pray, Lord God, that they will be drawn, Lord, by your love, but, Lord, they will be drawn by your righteousness, that you are a right God, that you are a just God. And so thank you that all those put their trust in you, Lord, will never be put to shame. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.